Welcome to The Perspective, a talk show exploring technology, entertainment, culture, and everything in between. I'm Sam Hallberg. Join my co-host Jordan Happick and I as we bridge the gap between big business and the consumer, the artist and the critic, providing a new perspective. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about Bioshock Infinite. It's been a couple weeks since the game came out, so we're hoping everybody's had a chance to play through it and hopefully get to the end. Um, It's going to be a fairly spoiler-heavy podcast today because a lot of people have been discussing uh, the game in terms of review material and uh, various aspects of the game itself, and and we're more interested in talking about the implications of the story of the game and what it is that Irrational Games is trying to tell the the player. Uh, Bioshock Infinite uh, has been reviewed very well. Uh, GameStop's Kevin Van Ord said Bioshock Infinite is a stupendous game portraying a beautiful and broken city that will absorb your every waking thought. Uh, IGN's Ryan McCaffrey said in total Bioshock Infinite is a brilliant shooter that nudges the entire genre forward with innovations in both storytelling and gameplay. And then across Metacritic, it has a 95 right now as of this recording. So the game is obviously doing very well critically, and it's just worth uh, approaching it from a little bit different angle and getting a new perspective on the game. Yeah, I mean, that's really, Sam, that's really what this podcast is kind of all about. Um, Kind of looking introspectively at, at games and kind of trying to understand as games evolve and kind of do take on this uh this more philosophical nature in 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 terms of what they're trying to tell us through the story i think this deeper discussion will be uh will be seen more and more throughout video game criticism cuz it, it doesn't it doesn't really exist today because frankly there aren't many games that uh demand that kind of level of uh thought yeah i'd say there's uh Halo is a fairly good game. It sells fairly well, but there isn't necessarily a reason to discuss it from a philosophical perspective. Or uh, the message may be there is a message. I don't want to sell it too short, but it's not necessarily that intriguing or uh, captivating. Right. I mean, there are religious themes in uh, in Halo, but it, 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 those themes are not so ingrained in in what the story means as to require that thought. So. Right. So, so let's begin the podcast today by sort of a, starting with a little bit of a spoiler-free zone where we want to talk a little bit about some of the things that a reviewer might, might want to touch on, sort of the look and the feel of the game, and maybe touch on the gameplay itself a little bit. Um, and then we'll sort of throw up a spoiler wall, and from that point on, we'll be talking about the game's ending and the game's themes and the meaning of the ending and, and so on and so forth. So let's start with sort of the look and feel of the game. And just to start us off, I want to mention that both Jordan and I played the game on the Xbox 360. So our views will be tainted or improved by that reality, <laughs> depending on your uh, perspective on the Xbox 360. Maybe, maybe slightly tainted. There were, a, uh, we'll get into it later, but uh, yeah. Let, let's start off with uh, the look and feel. First of all, Bioshock Infinite is an incredibly beautiful game. Um, uh, games wish they could look this good in terms of just uh, the technical artistic quality of it, but but also the just kind of uh, overall artistic quality of it. Not not you know in terms of kind of the inspiration it takes from uh, this 1912 setting, um, and it, it's it's really amazing to see, especially if you aren't familiar with the time period. Um, it, it's a great world to kind of walk around in and enjoy. And you do definitely get to do that at the beginning of the game with the fair setting. 
Right. And, and it's, it's beautiful in a different way from maybe something like a Call of Duty where uh, it's not necessarily a realism that lends itself to the beauty of the game, but more of a style. And uh, there, there are, playing it on the 360, there are some rough textures, there's some smudging going on. But overall, the style and the brightness of the world and the contrasting dinginess of other areas within the world really bring out the beauty of this game and really make you feel like you're not just playing a game, but you're playing a piece of art. Right, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about the audio. Um, for me, this this wraps into the the main themes of, of Bioshock Infinite, which we'll talk about later. But the audio was chosen, and specifically by audio, I mean the songs right now, uh, were chosen to incorporate uh, these larger themes of the world and kind of uh, the redemption and... Uh, and uh, the redemption aspect, I guess, mainly, um, but also uh, control and power in, in some other cases with, uh, with different songs. Do, do you have any specific examples? Yeah, one of the songs was um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which I, found, uh, which I found later in the game that, that kind of pointed to kind of Comstock's... Uh, kind of ethos or way of thinking. Um, and then uh, the other song that I found was Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which is very central to the uh, to the themes of Bioshock Infinite. Right. I, I actually feel like I missed both of those songs, and the songs that I perhaps didn't find as much meaning in but that really grabbed me were the, the Beach Boys song, Played by, sung by the mm -hmm. uh, barbershop quartet, and then also the the song "Fortunate Son," uh, and I believe it was sung somewhere near the middle of the game by uh, a young girl in the slum area. Yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, yeah, those are both very impactful moments. Uh, one's shining light on sort of the joy and the happiness of the city, and the other one uh, highlighting the gloom and the the sorrow in uh, some of the city's less robust areas mm -hmm. you know sound is very much a core to this game in terms of gameplay as well which we're going to get to in a moment but you can tell what's happening in the world based on the sounds you can't always see when you're in combat what it is that you're going to be fighting whether it's a patriot or just a, a regular vox soldier um but there's certain sounds and the steam coming out of, of a patriot and the and then even the songbird uh the music as as the songbird comes in it's very distinct and I would say just in a word, the audio for, for Bioshock Infinite is intentional. Right. It's It feels very well designed, like you said. You, you get these audio cues that you know what's happening, these strings after you, you finish off an area that let you know, what, which sounds good and is also uh, it also lets you know what's happening in the game. Um, another thing I wanted to point out is the voice work in this game is incredible. Um the performances are really well done and it, it it feels it feels like it could be something out of a movie to me so uh, what were your thoughts about the voice work yeah i i think in in a way i didn't even pay attention to it because it was so good All right times in games it's a distraction <laughs> and uh you almost wish that we'd return to the days of a subtitle just so that we don't have to deal with horrible voice acting 
or even just a, a lack of a sync between the, the character in the game and the voice acting. But it was so seamless in Bioshock that you, you almost don't notice it, and that really does lend to the sort of blockbuster movie feel uh, that the game has. Right, and you did pick up on that subtle thing where the, the characters' mouths moved very well with the actual audio, which can o- always be jarring if that isn't done right, and it, Bioshock Infinite does it well. Yeah, it seems like an extremely minor complaint, but in terms of this game is such an immersive experience, uh, it's nice that in this minor way it doesn't rip you out of that immersion. Right. So let's move on to the gameplay, uh, just briefly touch on that, and then we'll move into our spoiler zone where we want to talk more about the story. Um, what did you feel uh, were some of the highlights in the gameplay, and then were there any sort of low points? Um, you know, the gameplay was was better throughout, in my opinion, uh, the entire game than Bioshock 1 in terms of how the shooting felt. Uh, the the on-rails sections were interesting and, and fun, but I felt they... they I could have used a bit more of them, I guess. I felt that they were slightly underutilized. And this is another point I want to make. I think certain things in the game, like the tears, I'm not going to go into sport territory here, but I think the tears were underutilized. And it, Bioshock Infinite felt like a game that really was in development for five years. You know, if you saw footage back from E3 2011, there were just things that were straight out not in the game. And I, I felt... Again, like the the tears could have been utilized better. So, right, I I I tend to err on the side of, of giving the benefit of the doubt to a developer, and saying that, especially with a game like this, which was in development for so long, that they really they may have had this certain gameplay aspects in an initial build, and that be, they're not there probably with good reason. So I'm mm. not as bothered by the things that have changed since the 2011 E3 showing. Um, some things that I, I didn't really like in the game and that I'm sort of debating in my mind whether or not I like Bioshock 1 or Bioshock Infinite better is I I preferred the scarcity of resources uh, in Bioshock 1 to the seeming plethora of resources in Bioshock Infinite. I guess that goes back to some other games I enjoy, but but there, I was never really concerned with the uh, with the weapons I had or the ammo I had, and it just made me approach the game from a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very philosophical choice. And uh, personally, it doesn't bother me, but I can understand uh, why why you would like that. But I also feel like that uh, lack of ammo and just items in Bioshock 1 kind of was cohesive with the entire world that you were in at the time. Um, and so it, it kind of makes sense to me why in Bioshock Infinite you have more uh, at your disposal. Yeah. And just one other piece is, and I know this is probably the, the silliest thing to get upset about in terms of uh, it just wouldn't fit in Bioshock Infinite, is this one of the central characters of the idea of Bioshock game is a big daddy. And I'm not advocating for including big daddies in Bioshock Infinite. <laughs> I'm more as, as a character, I, but I did appreciate their value as a gameplay um, tool because what would ultimately happen is you would encounter a big daddy they were ultimately neutral in the beginning, and you would then save up resources, lay down mines, tripwires, whatever it was you needed, and then antagonize the big daddy. And it made for this very exciting moment where you got to choose, essentially, the boss fight. And you would be thinking the whole time you're fighting other splicers, 
you know, I've got to save my ammo because there's going to be a big daddy soon. And that, that sort of resource management slash decision making and sort of pre- preparation that, that exists in Bioshock is missing in Infinite. And I missed it as well. That's true. I, I, I do understand what you're saying. And again, it, it is just a choice that, uh, you know, uh, the mechanized uh, enemies in this game aren't quite, don't give you that kind of decision-making uh, kind of choice and preparatory kind of uh, way of thinking in terms of how they appear. They just kind of appear, and you just have enough to deal with them. Right. So, yeah, the, the handyman is, is essentially a, a copy and paste of a big daddy, but it doesn't say it serve the same gameplay role. Right. So that's really, you know, in a way it's missing. Mm. Uh, let's let's maybe move on from gameplay and jump into our spoiler section. One thing I do want to mention before we, we actually leave gameplay is that at the very end of the game, uh, I experienced on the Xbox 360 some fairly severe frame rate issues. I don't know if you experienced that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that was, it was... It was a little rough, and I, I was a little disappointed playing through that that the last section of the game. Um, it was the type of thing that I, I feel like Irrational probably knew about. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, not to give too much away, but in, in this sort of final setting, there's a lot of weather environments and other things sort of happening in the background, and I part of me just wonders, you know, I understand why that stuff was there to add gloom to the situation, but in a way, I'd rather just remove all that and have a steady frame rate. Whatever it takes to let me enjoy the actual gameplay in, and lose everything else. Yeah, I mean, the, I really feel w- what, uh, what kind of broke the frame rate was just the scale and just the amount of distance you could see. And also, you know, the amount of enemies on the screen. But Right. So I guess anybody who's listening to this can conclude that it, it's a fairly easy game, but towards the end it does ratchet up, and that includes a greater number of enemies, a greater number of enemies approaching from farther distances, and, and all that sort of combines to sort of break the game in a way. And ultimately, we both made it through that part, but it was fairly frustrating. And I think yeah. uh, most Xbox 360 players will experience the same. And I do want to note that I personally did have it installed, so it's not a it's not an issue with that. So, and and by contrast, I did not. <laughs> so, so yeah, it appears as though installation means nothing in this particular yeah. case. All right, now we're going to move into the spoiler uh, section of the show, and where we'll be discussing the story and the themes of Bioshock Infinite. And let's start with the discussion of the story itself and how Irrational tells this rather robust story and a very unique story for the video game format. Um, One of the things I actually felt was a little bit of a negative in the way that they told the story was a lot of the most key elements of the story are implied. And that builds to a rather a good twist at the end because you don't necessarily see it coming unless you were able to put together all those implications. At the same time, it's very easy for somebody to play through the game and with the possible exception of the very end, miss almost every implication and, and feel rather confused and feel like they didn't actually understand the story. Yeah, and, and to me that to me that doesn't bother me because I, I feel like I don't really want to be uh, have my hand held through a story in a sense, and I want there to be. I want to do a little legwork in terms of thinking, um, 
because in the end, I feel like if a if a story is so easily understood, um, then maybe maybe something is missing. So uh, that's that's kind of at least in terms of a, a sci-fi story. Um, so that that's kind of how I feel about that. Um, there there were instances um, throughout the game that were key pieces of information were revealed in voxophones that if you did not find, you would not know what was going on. But I felt like those pieces could, like you said, could be inferred through the world. And if they couldn't, it wasn't so detrimental to ruin the story. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I think that there's just sort of a decision-making in terms of design of your story and whether or not you're going to tell the whole story up front and lose the people that really want to actually dedicate brain power to thinking about it when they're done with the game. And uh, at the same time, you risk losing people that aren't necessarily interested in thinking and just want to be playing a shooter. And it's, it's interesting that Bioshock is this great story housed in a genre that's traditionally not known for promoting intellectual thought. Not that any <laughs> game genre necessarily has that accolade but i would say shooters probably have at the bottom of the of the list i i agree and you know just just a side note just to throw in uh they did they did have that box art uh to me that box art kind of spoke uh subtly but in volumes of the the realities of the marketplace and sitting on uh you know a gamestop shelf uh what were your thoughts on the box art I, I completely agree. Man, muscly man with shotgun and woman. Yeah, uh, yeah the perfect boxer. I don't, <laughs> right. I don't know if you noticed, but you could flip that over, and it was pretty in, it, awesome on the other side. There is oh, a cool... I actually did not notice that. Yeah. I'll have yeah, to take a so. look. Um, I, I still feel that perhaps a vo- the way of telling the story through voxophones was, was perhaps... Perhaps not the right way of telling a story in a video game. And I felt this way across several other video games as well. And at the very least, a voxophone is something that plays while you continue to walk around the world. So there's Mm -hmm. a positive. But in a lot of games, I've I've seen this increasingly. In an effort to increase the value of the product, there's hidden items in games now that, that tell sort of an ancillary story or even the main story in the case of Bioshock Infinite. And right. it's easy to both miss those, and it's even easier to not want to read them. At least in Bioshock, they're red. Um, I recently played through Tomb Raider, in which they're also red whenever she finds a book. But unfortunately, you have to stay in the menu with the diaries, something that I found myself increasingly less likely to do as I played through the game and, and wanted to just get to the end. So I, I feel like it's something that the, the industry needs to watch out for, is this tendency towards hiding your story in a way that a certain percentage of your audience may entirely miss it. You know, it, it's really no secret that uh, telling a story in a video game is difficult because the more control you put on the player, the less it feels like a game and vice versa. So it's this really uh, subtle kind of sweet spot of letting the player have control and and kind of experience the story and uh, unfurl it for itself and then on the other extreme you have a game you know like metal gear solid which is uh you know a lot of it is just a cutscene, which you know it's it, it's just the realities of trying to make a video game and it's hard 
Um, and I think Bioshock, you know, for, for the criticism, does it well, in my opinion. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I guess the alternative to my complaint about the Voxophones is cutscenes akin to Metal Gear Solid. And right. I personally don't like Metal Gear Solid. I can barely stand sitting through those cutscenes. And I know you are a little bit more tolerant <laughs> of those, so maybe you wouldn't mind, but uh, I guess I need to think about the implications of my complaints before I make them. So let's say, Voxophones, <laughs> you're okay in my book. <laughs> maybe not long text right. that I have to actually read. No, nobody wants that. Nobody no. wants that. If I want to read, I'll curl up with a book. Not sit in yeah. front of my Or you'll TV. play Skyrim and read the endless amounts of books and notes in that game, which, you know, to each his own. Right. I, I assume that stuff is made for somebody. I just don't know that person. Yeah. <laughs> They're probably in a basement somewhere. Uh, let's move on from talking about the story and the way it's, the way it's told to actually talking about uh, the themes of the story. And there's... From this point on, we've been sort of making the assumption that the listener has either already beaten the game or is very familiar with the story. So we're not necessarily going to touch on the story arc in terms of uh, this happens and this happens and then it concludes in this way. We're assuming that you already know that. And we want to talk more broadly about the themes that are present in the game. So let's start with probably the most obvious theme, and that's religion. Uh, yeah, uh, religion's a huge part of Bioshock Infinite. It courses through the veins of the entire game, um, and it's a major component of the end kind of redemption, in a way, of Booker through himself, um, which is very core to uh, the, the actual message of the game, in my opinion. Um, so uh, w what else do you have to say about the religion in the game? Well, I think there's especially... Uh it's especially easy to see this, the, the presence of religion in the story of Columbia as being almost a cautionary tale and saying uh, this is the way people of extreme charismatic power can impact other people. It has a very Jim Jonesian sort of feel to it. Um, this guy is leading people into the sky, and then he is, uh, is essentially creating a society that only looks inward and eventually it leads to this prophecy of the, the seed of the prophet will rain fire on the mountains of men. For, for Just for a second, for listeners who maybe don't, aren't familiar with uh, Jim Jones, what, 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 what are you talking about there? Uh, Jim Jones was uh, essentially a false prophet in the uh, 70s, I believe, 60s and 70s, and he led a church of uh, largely Americans. And uh, eventually, it's, at one point, he threw the Bible out and he said i am the word of god right. and not not any kind of text and that may be a first sign that somebody has sort of <laughs> jumped, right. jumped the gun a right. little bit there exactly and, um but it, it essentially ended with him moving his flock to a place called jonestown which was in south america and that, that could maybe be connected to the idea of moving to columbia sort of this outside area and uh uh, at Jonestown, eventually, they uh, his followers all killed themselves by drinking um, some fruit juice product, and that's actually where the uh, the term is. Uh, let's drink the Kool Aid comes from. You may have heard that right. we're drinking right. the Kool Aid, and that's sort of the idea of buying into a greater idea that's maybe only espoused by one person, right. and that may or may not actually be a good idea. Mm. Uh, though, though, religion is probably the 
most prominent uh, reality in Colombia as uh, Booker enters the city for the first time and he's baptized. And uh, you see repeated references to the prophet as Comstock. It's very religious overtones. There's very quickly becomes apparent that there's actually another side to the city that's less religious-based and more focused on the idea of exceptionalism and racism. And I think we should just talk for a moment about that the racism and the way that it's depicted in the game, uh, starting with, let's just describe and discuss the very first major instance of racism in the game. Yeah, I mean, right right when you get to Columbia, you notice um, kind of how, from the very moment, I, I feel like the first moment that at least I remember seeing was uh, on the beach after you land, um, of uh, you know African Americans working and uh, just kind of Caucasians standing around on the beach, um, and from that moment I, I I realized something was up. And then later on you do get to you get to kind of experience that more with the various paintings and statues. There's a painting of you know Abraham Lincoln getting shot, um, and you know kind of John Wilkes Booth is kind of not deified, but, you know, kind of uh, exalted as, as someone to look up to. Rather um, glorious painting of him. Right, yeah. Uh, again, hearkening back to uh, how, how good the game looks. Um, so that, that, was, that really stood out to me. I think those are really good points about the way uh, Colombia is very much a racist society at its core. And I think even beyond what you were saying, which is maybe more sort of the middle beginning of the game towards the middle, and it sort of reveals this overarching theme across the all of Colombia society, is that when you first enter the city, and this is actually fairly typical in video games, so I think fairly few people would have noticed this, but there's only white people in the city of Colombia that you see initially. And uh, that's not very rare. Most games are not particularly interested in racial diversity. But uh, as you play through the game, you enter a raffle, and you win the raffle, and the prize is you get to throw a baseball at a mixed-race couple. And the idea being that uh, they're an abomination and that they are somehow um, acting in defiance of the will of the prophet or the will of a god figure. And you have the choice of throwing the ball or throwing it at the announcer. And regardless of your choice, you're ultimately stopped. The game doesn't let you go through with the act of throwing and injuring somebody of a mixed race. But uh, it's, it's, the very, it's a very poignant and powerful moment in which you realize this game is more than just a game. It's a commentary on, on a reality. And it's a reality that was very much present at the time that the game is supposed to be taking place in the late 19th century. And it even follows through with what you were saying with John Wilkes Booth, where to many today, especially living in the northern United States, John Wilkes Booth is a hero, is a, not a hero, <laughs> is a demon in yeah. many ways. But at, at the turn of the 19th century, especially in the South, he would have probably been viewed as a hero. And he very much was viewed as a hero because the South you know, and lost out in the Civil War and suffered greatly as a result. So it's, it's very, very rare that you'd see a commentary in that on these themes in a movie. And it's probably unheard of that you would see these in a video game. And so just at the very beginning, it sets this game apart from anything else. And I just want to point out that it's a really big deal that you, you can, you get to make that choice because, and the, the choice of throwing the baseball at the African American couple or not, because it, it sets apart what 
what games are fundamentally from movies. Yeah, it pu- it face it places the player in the moment of the decision, and mm-hmm. you take responsibility for that decision. Right. Whether you think about it much at the time, you you ultimately are responsible for that choice. Right. And uh, one one last thing I wanted to comment on racism in the game is it's actually f- fairly interesting. I thought that as you sort of enter the slums of the city and you see the way the African-American population of Colombia lives, it's fairly seedy and it's, it's a slum. It's very terrible. And ultimately out of this area is where the, the Vox Populi revolt and eventually they overthrow the founders of the city. But I, what I thought was interesting is over the course of the game, you actually fight the Vox Populi and you you shoot them for a good half of the game. And among those bodies, I never noticed a black Vox. Maybe I just wasn't looking hard enough, but it seemed as though the idea was a, a sort of a, a black uprising from the oppression, and then the game didn't go so far as to actually have you killing people who were black. It didn't want to cross that uh, right. political correctness barrier. Right, but it's a huge part of, of again, uh, part of the themes of Bioshock Infinite in that, you know, they're really, it's a very fuzzy kind of who's right and who's wrong type of uh, moral ground that this game is trying to expose. You know, Comstock morally could be, you know, considered wrong, and so is the Vox Populi. So, you know, which side do you choose, you know? Right. By, by the end of the game, they're both revealed to be right. fairly similar in terms of their their end goals. In addition to racism, um, there is this running theme of kind of exceptionalism in Colombia. Uh, Comstock certainly seems to subscribe to the idea that the people living there are uh, somehow better than everyone else, which is why they fled to the sky um, and refers to everyone below in, in actual rural America as Sodom below. So if you want to kind of talk about uh, uh, the different sequences and also in the museum kind of how they uh, kind of appear in the game. Yeah. Uh, one of the most poignant moments in the game is when you enter a museum called the Hall of Heroes. And it's, it's essentially it's a memorial, a living memorial to... Uh, the, these two major battles that Columbia took part in, and both of them are real battles in history, and um, neither of them are depicted accurately. They're depicted with a heavy sense of exceptionalism. The, the first one, um, chronologically, is the Battle of Wounded Knee, which happened uh, in the United States, and in which uh, hundreds of Native Americans were massacred. And Columbia is actually not involved in this battle, but you, you, the display reveals that Comstock was... And another guy, um, uh, General Slate, is also involved in the battle. And uh, it depicts, the, the displays depict Indians as wild and crazy. And they depict the battle as, as actually being a battle. Whereas in reality, the, it was more of a massacre where very few uh, American soldiers were killed. And they were essentially firing on women and children in teepees. Um, and then the second battle that's depicted in the the Hall of Heroes is um, a non-existent battle that put down the Boxer Rebellion in China. And the idea of this is that the Boxer Rebellion was possibly going to be killing Americans, so Colombia swept in and massacred the Boxer Army. 
And this did not actually happen in history. Obviously, there's no city in the sky to rescue Beijing. But uh, they depict the the uh, Chinese below as being like monkeys, there being hordes of them, and ultimately Colombia being heroes with Comstock as their leader. And this just sort of feeds the idea that that Colombia is something better than anything else in the world. They're more powerful than the United States. They're more powerful than China. Uh, they're the most powerful and religiously pure society uh, in the world. I want to kind of wrap this back around in, in, into actual real history and, and point out that a lot of what, what uh, you see and you hear in Colombia, especially in the beginning with all the nationalism and exceptionalism, uh, reminds me of something that I, I saw when I visited uh, one, of the, one of the death camps in, uh, in Germany uh, when I lived there. Um, Outside Auschwitz, or outside one of the gas chambers in Auschwitz, uh, Adolf Hitler ha- had a sign saying, I want to raise a generation uh, devoid of a conscience, imperious, relentless, and cruel. And I think that when you do take a society and, and have a leader that really believes that they are better than everyone else and that human life has no value, that this is exactly what you end up with. Right. And that's that's why ultimately the story ties all of this evil, not necessarily to the city, but to the character of Comstock and the ultimate necessity to eliminate him from all the versions of reality that he in which he exists. So this, this sort of brings us perfectly to the last point I want to discuss, the last theme of the game. And it's sort of the the crux of the ending of the game and... Uh, it's it's the nature of evil in the game. And really, evil is tied very clearly to Comstock. But at the very end, it's revealed that Comstock and Booker DeWitt are actually the same person. And mm. they're different. They, they exist in different realities from each other. But they are, in fact, the same person. They're different outcomes of the same life. And uh, I think we should just comment on that and how the ending... Um, is a commentary on the perhaps a close proximity between good and evil. Yeah. At the end, ultimately any belief um, rationalized can produce something evil if construed, you know, regardless if a person is given the blank check of forgiveness. Uh, Religion is kind of uh, vilified in this, but really any belief if taken to an extreme can produce uh, evil. Um, there is the question, of course, what is evil at that point? But the faith of Comstock was in himself in the end and not in some higher power. Um, and that's a really key distinction to make. Uh, Bioshock Infinite is in many ways where we find ourselves kind of existentially as people living in a postmodern time, kind of unable to rationalize why we need morality without a religious worldview because in the end what what is moral w- without uh, a set of rules and and caught in between this struggle to find truth in that um we see we have both within ourselves you see that within comstock and booker dewitt um but but at the end of the game we get no answer of why we have that and how to fix it um a a teacher a religious teacher that I listened to um, called Ravi Zacharias uh, said something which I think is really poignant and kind of uh, kind of 
makes sense to me as Bioshock Infinite as a game as a whole. And he says, teaching is at, at best beckons us to morality, but is, is not in itself efficacious. Teaching is like a mirror. It can show you your face is dirty, but the mirror will not wash your face. And, and that's exactly what Bioshock Infinite is as far as looking at morality. Um, you know, in the end, uh, you, can, you can say uh, uh, religion was, was the horrible kind of means that allowed this to all happen, but Booker only was able to save himself because of this metaphysical magic. And in a way, that's just as supernatural as God. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Perspective Podcast. If you haven't yet picked up your, po- your copy of Bioshock Infinite, make sure you go out and grab a copy. It's truly a great game. Don't forget to review us on iTunes and send your feedback and questions to the Perspective Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>